June 1982. This is episode 23 of the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm your host, Rob. This is the first episode in the phase two of the Player Missile Podcast, in which I hope to put out episodes on a regular basis. I've said that before, so we'll see how it goes. You'll notice several differences about phase two of the podcast versus the earlier phase. And right off the top, you'll notice the wondrous new theme song, graciously provided by Steph Animal. She also provided the theme song for the far too short XLXE podcast, which has completed its run. I contacted her, and she was super kind and allowed me to use her song Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear which is available on Bandcamp, and I will include a link to her stuff uh, in the show notes. And I really enjoyed the XLXE podcast, and it's interesting that a whole podcast has come and gone since the last time I've had a regular episode. And if you haven't heard theirs, it's about 10 episodes. It's two guys from New Zealand talking about their experiences with the Atari and games. And it's, just, it's a really fun listen. The guys are clearly having a good time reliving all this stuff, and they're uh, obviously great friends, and it's, uh, it's just a fun like almost fly on the wall experience listening to these two guys talk about their Atari stuff. So definitely recommended. Unfortunately, they aren't putting out new episodes, but sort of as a tribute to their work, I was, as I was sort of thinking about coming back in phase two of the podcast, I was like, I don't know, kind of, I was tired of the old theme song and just on a whim, I contacted Steph Animal about maybe using one of her songs. It's kind of continuing in the spirit of the XLXE podcast. And as I said, yeah, she was super gracious and allowed me to use it. And yeah, I couldn't be more excited to have a uh, theme song that's like really has that retro feel. So check out her stuff. The track I got was from the album Top Gear, which has been out for a little while. And she has a new album based on some uh, music she, she did for a, a game on the Pico 8 platform, which is sort of a virtual machine that can be used on uh, modern hardware, but it's in the retro style. It's like a, it's 128 by 128 pixels. And she did a game called Spooky House, which, and there's another album of her music that you can listen to on Bandcamp as well. So in another tip of the cap to the XLXE podcast, I am drinking an Elysian Dago IPA, which is a brewery in Seattle. And I'm a big hop person. And this is a pleasantly hopped IPA with actually a bit more alcohol than I was expecting. It's a seven percenter. So, so we'll see how the rest of this recording goes. Although, actually, a good portion of this recording will actually have been done well prior to this. So all the magazine coverage that you're going to hear, I actually did back in 2017. So I've been sitting on this for like two years, waiting for you know time, motivation, whatever, to continue. Mostly time. Well, and motivation. But in the meantime, I have been working on Omnivore like crazy. And part of this phase two is going to be sort of a tutor- tutorial on using Omnivore in the guise of figuring out how to do various techniques in uh, video games. So for this episode, I'm going to look at a game called Quarkson. And in the game review section, I'm going to use Omnivore to walk through how the displayless interrupts are used in this game. And hopefully learn more about displayless interrupts as I go through. Um, the displayless interrupts are one of the areas that I've sort of never really understood completely. And so hopefully this episode will be a starting point for me to learn displayless interrupts, and and perhaps you as well, with the goal of eventually you know, writing my own games using displayless interrupts. As Phase 2 goes along, I will, of course, continue to be working on Omnivore in the development sense, adding new features, but also 
using the podcast to explore other areas of game development on the 8-bits. So, you know, vertical blank interrupts, player missile graphics, character set animation, optimization, hopefully sound and music, because that's one area I have zero knowledge about. And at this point, Omnivore doesn't even handle sound. So that'll have to be delayed until I can get Omnivore and sound working. But I'm going to continue on with the magazine coverage, so every episode will be another month's worth of magazines. And then I'll choose a game that has some feature that I want to demonstrate and talk about, and then we'll do it all over again. I'll also include some feedback, but I don't know that I'm going to have any of the other sections that I used to have in the podcast. So it'll basically be introduction, magazine coverage, and game slash technical review. So I actually do have a little bit of feedback here, but it's feedback from 2017. So the stuff you're going to hear now is several years old, and then when I come back after the magazine coverage, this will be current stuff where we'll look at the game and quarks on, and I'll fire off Omnivore, and we'll kind of walk through it a little bit. So here we go. Here's the old stuff from 2017. And I got a fair amount on the Twitters. Got some notes saying, welcome back, which was nice. When I tweeted out the announcement for this new episode, or for episode 21, I said I wasn't super happy with the quality, but my new laissez-faire attitude, it will have to do. And Ferg of the 2600 Game by Game podcast said, laissez-faire is the best fare. And he said, thanks for the episode, looking forward to it. Uh, Fergus talked on his podcast about being okay with what you say and not doing a whole lot of editing, and so that's what I'm trying to do here. 8-Bit Rocket on Twitter said, the great new pod, the sound quality was great. I really want to play Amidar on the 8-Bits. I love Kid Grid and the 2600 Amidar. I'd never heard of the 2600 Amidar, and I hadn't heard of Kid Grid either. I looked up Kid Grid and played it on the emulator, and it is very Amidar-like, although it's it's all the boxes are always the same size, and so it, does, so it doesn't have really the Amidar movement because it... Um, some sections intersect with four directions to choose from, and that wouldn't be allowed in Amidar, because Amidar has to... You've got to take a, a horizontal path once you're going... When you're going vertically, you have to take the horizontal path if you cross it. So it wouldn't know what to do if it had left and right. But I hadn't come across that in the days when I was pirating stuff, so I didn't see that classic game. I don't recall anyway. Maybe I saw it briefly, but... Josh Malone on Twitter said, Thanks for such a good discussion of Fujiran and graphics programming. You can keep my zero dollars. You've earned them. Well, thank you very much. I, that goes a long way to help with the podcast, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, clearly this is not a money-making endeavor at all. I don't know, I kind of think of it maybe as payment for the other podcasts that I listen to. Since few of us get into this for the money. Bill Kendrick said, Do my ears deceive me, or did I hear a little sound effect from my game Gem Drop in there? And yes, he did. I've been using that sound effect for a while for the um, intro to the, the listener written program section. I covered Gem, Gem Drop back on episode, I don't know, Five, I don't have it in front of me, but it's in the back catalog for sure. Kim Slauson on Twitter, who has a great handle, 0xCoffee, which is a valid hex number. And I don't know why, I, I, for some reason, way back when I started learning C, I would, I'd call it 0crossFF or something. I don't know why I, the X, the cross symbol is a cross product in, in math, and uh, maybe that's why I, how I got to use, use it as, see it as cross instead of X. But anyway, so he said, just listened to episode one and wondered if the moles and trolls work, 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 work quote was from Real Genius, and indeed it was. One of my favorite movies. And we went back and forth on some Real Genius quotes, which is a super quotable movie. If you've not seen it and you're listening to this podcast, you will. it's right in your wheelhouse, so you should definitely go see it. Michael Glazer said that he's going to miss the coverage of Byte, because he said, I covered some really great info, and we'll miss it. Still a great podcast, and love it. Yeah, thanks, Michael. And so... I have to thank Michael again for doing all the soft side stuff. Soft side is one of his favorite magazines, and 
back as I was getting started, he sent me a whole bunch of info on the soft side and all the like soft side program discs and stuff. And so I appreciate all his work doing soft side. It was just kind of hard to coordinate our schedules. And you know, he also has the XCGS cart by cart podcast that he's working on. And so I would rather him spend his time doing that so I get other podcasts to listen to than take away from that and do soft side for me. Because, yeah, I, I don't know. Soft side is not my favorite. And I will probably just cover it in the table of contents kind of mode. Unless I see something super interesting. I always reserve the right to see something super interesting and cover it, but I don't expect it regularly. Finally, on Atari Age, uh, the real bo- Bounty Bob, who runs the uh, high score contest over there and has put out several games himself, said he enjoyed the new episode. I wouldn't worry too much about editing. I, for one, enjoy the content and a few hard edits and mistakes will be fine, especially if you, if you can do more episodes. Smiley face. As usual, I like the detail on the, how games are done. I think you're in your element when you get into discussing this. Well, yeah, thanks. It's kind of like a double-edged sword, you know. I really like doing that. I like looking at it. I just don't have the time to sort of delve in as much as I want on all the games that I want to. Like, part of the reason this podcast was so delayed is I didn't really have time to look at Galahad in the depth that I wanted to. So I kept putting it off and putting it off, and finally I just said, you know, I just got to just get it done, and, um, spoiler alert, I don't really like the game that much, so I was not as motivated to look through it as, say, I would have a Jumpman or something, because, you know, Kevin from the Antic Podcast and I spent just hours and hours and hours and hours on Jumpman, but that felt more, more like fun, and looking through a program you don't really like feels more like homework, and it's easier to do one of those than the other. For listener-written programs, there's a really cool hack done to Seamus by Siegfried Lentz and announced it over on Atari Age. Actually, probably, I think, before the last podcast was released, but I didn't get to it, so I'm covering it here. So what he did was he noticed that the C64 version of Seamus had different mazes. So he reverse-engineered both the C64 and the Atari maze formats, plugged in all the C64 mazes into a new level set of levels for, for this, and created a whole bunch of additional sets of levels. So in this new version of Seamus that he posted, and there's um, a really good write-up, he did a, a whole PDF where he went through sort of like step-by-step step as he was as discovering this stuff. I wrote down a bunch of screenshots and written in a cool typesetting program called The Tech, which I have used in the past. And it's it's kind of got this, it's got this feel about the way that it generates the pages. Well, there's two things about it. And there's a, it uses a lot of white space, and it uses this font called Computer Modern that was designed by Ignuth, as as was the tech, but it's very recognizable and it's it's used a lot, I guess for or was anyway. I'm not sure what the status is now, but uh, it's used a lot in education for like dissertations and stuff. It's got really good you know formula and graphics and math stuff, and yeah, it's very sort of tech heavy. It fits well in a, a technical setting. Anyway, I was kind of geeking out over noticing it was a lit tech document, so I appreciate anybody who works to understand lit tech because it's a bit obscure at times obtuse, perhaps obfuscated, abtruse even, question mark? Although I cheated on that last one. It starts with an A. Anyway, go check out his work. It's very, very cool. Link in the show notes, as they say. Teeny little tech section here. I'm working on Omnivore quite a bit, and it's I'm sort of, I don't know, in the middle of making some big changes. I, I was not happy with sort of the architecture, and I went back and I'm making it much more readable and modular and changing to WX Python 4, which means that Omnivore will be installable on any system using pip, the Python installer, including Unix, and Unix has been such a hassle previously. You had to compile WX Python yourself, and it was not easy, but now it's it's using the latest vers- version of WX widgets, and it's, yeah, 
it's on the Python package index. And I'm just trying to prevent travesty that Michael Sternberg had to endure at Kansas Fest. He was using a Linux desktop, but had to run Omnivore through Wine, which is just like, no, that's not that's not going to happen. i got to fix that. So, Michael, I'm working on it. I'm going to get a version out here soon, hopefully. That's going to be way improved, and it'll have, like, you can do an arbitrary number of viewers. Like, you can have, like, four different graphics viewers of the same data. Or two disassembly viewers, like one disassembling 6502, one disassembling Z80 for some weird reason, if you want that. But it's possible. So, stay tuned for that. I'll announce it for sure when I get done, or when I get a release candidate again, or something. All right, let's get to the point here. We're going to start looking at some magazines. This first one is Antic, volume one, number two, June 1982, two bucks, 50 on the cover price. And this now has the Antic logo, as I remember it. And I pretty much through the rest of the run of the magazine, it uses this same block, um, you know, font and subtitle. This is Antic, the Atari resource. And I don't know, I kind of like that when a magazine or some entity uses the same logo throughout its, its existence. I know when Compute was bought by um, LFP, it changed into the kind of, like, Omni style, if you remember the magazine Omni, those kind of, like, almost like NASA worm-style letters. And it just didn't look the same. Well, of course, it wasn't the same by then. It was not covering any Atari stuff at all. But, anyway, yes, thumbs up to the Antic logo and continuing to use it. On the picture is a something that nobody who was born after about 19, what, 80 would recognize an acoustic coupler modem. Probably majority of people today wouldn't even remember what an acoustic handset looked like. Well, that's overstating a little bit, maybe, but um, this is a picture of this uh, acoustic modem orbiting the Earth with um, sort of North America underneath it, and um, North America in green, and the, the, the modem's in purple, and it's got, like, streaks of color coming off, like it's going super fast. And it says, Communications Software Online Databases Speech Synthesis and Modems. Uh, the mass set here is James Caparell and as I mentioned before, um, Kevin did a great interview with him way, way back on one of the first several episodes of Antic, the Atari podcast. And we'll cover the whole magazine, so I'm not even going to bother going through the table of contents. So the first little section is what they call the I.O. board, which is, as they note in a footnote here, is the same as the letters to the editor. It says, we read all the letters that come in and reproduce some representative examples. We invite all of you beginners in advance to continue to let us know how we've helped or hindered your use of the Atari. Since there are two other things we hope you do, first, contact any of our advertisers until you tell them you saw their ad in Antic. And second, if your computer store does not yet carry Antic, ask them to do so. We distribute nationwide. Unfortunately, not forward in time, like 35 years, but that's why we have the, the Internet Archive. The magazine's in full color. They have all some ads, like the, well, the Percom ad is black and white, but the next one is uh, for Datasoft, and it's got a, a um, ad for, uh, what is the graphics program? Oh, MicroPainter, and they show like a graphic 7-plus image of a old-time 1920s car. The first article is uh, Modems by John Loveless. So it goes through the terminology of modems, which now is... Pff, you might as well need a primer now, because nobody knows what this stuff is. But baud is like the bits per second, the standard at this time being a 300-baud modem, and they say that a 1,200-baud modem is going to be available soon, but it's at a premium price. So watch for this price to fall over the next few years. Then they talk about an acoustic coupled modem, you know, where you set the handset down. A direct connect, which is, you know, you plug in the phone jack to it. And answer originate. It says, these terms describe which modem is calling and which is answering. <laughs> there must be a modem on each end, but they do not have to be the same brand. Either modem can do either job, but not at the same time. Coincidentally, on the next page, there's an ad for a hey, smart modem. And it goes through and talks about a few modems. The Atari 830, the Micro Connection A, which has a built-in uh, SIO connector. 
And it leads right into an article, Dialing for Data, by Robert DeWitt, talking about what you can contact. And nationally, the Comp- CompuServe and the Source are the two big ones. Next is Communication Software by John Lellis, again, talking, talking about some of the programs, like Telling Cartridge from Atari, Datalink from Swifty Software, a program called Download by Computer Age, Chameleon by APX, T-Smart by Microperfeal Corporation, and T-H-E, which is from Binary Computer Software. None of these I used, but by the t- I didn't get modem for another probably two years, and I can't remember what program I used. I'll have to think about that. And that's the end of the modem section. We move on to some of the programming stuff. There's an assembly language routine here called MoveIt, which is pretty misnamed. It's n- not a move routine, really. It's a sort of a blank routine. It it'll, takes one byte and blasts it into as many memory locations as you want. There's a little mini-article on screen editing using the screen editing of cursor keys and stuff by Robert DeWitt, which was always a was pretty pretty shocking to people. You used to like the Apple II. It was like you can just move the arrow key up and correct a line. And I had um, several people comment that that was a pretty cool feature. There's an article about speech synthesizers. There's a Echo GP and a Type and Talk. These are both hardware speech synthesizers. And, yeah, coincidentally, again, amazingly, there's an ad for the Echo GP right next to this article. <laughs> Shocking. In the Tricks of the Trade section, there's an article on game programming by Stan Ockers. And this is a, this is a vertical, vertical blank routine used to give basic sort of the ability to move players and missiles quickly rather than trying to move them in basic, which is super slow. There's an article on Pilot, which is a logo-like language by... Ken W. Harms. It's talking about allowing you to do fancy tricks such as large letters and changing colors. I uh, never used Pilot at all. Never used Logo. The only sort of really oddball language I ever used was Lisp. I did a little bit of Emacs Lisp programming, and that was mind-bending. But that was, of course, way after this. That was that was in the what late '80s? No, it must have been '90s, even early '90s. There's an article inside Atari. It says it's talking about the user group support section, and at this point. They still had, you know, a pretty good rapport with the user groups, and there's a few interviews that Kevin's done on Antic, talking about, you know, sort of like the user group outreach people, and uh, it lists the direct phone number to the group, and and tells that the um, the staff here maintains the CompuServe, CompuServe Atari newsletter. So just type go ATR one when you're on CompuServe next time, and you'll be able to ask them some questions. And another sign of the times, there's this stupid paragraph. It says, The manager of the staff is Earl Rice. He's assisted by Mark Cater, marketing specialist Dave Manconi, software analyst, and Gretchen Nichols, who prefers not to be called secretary and who really does all the work. Which, with today's ears, sounds pretty sexist. And even back then, it was unnecessarily demeaning, I guess. Implying that she does all the work and the men get all the credit. I mentioned this with some expectation of a small amount of blowback. You know, the only negative feedback I've ever really gotten on the podcast is when I've mentioned sexist stuff appearing in, in magazines in the past. And I, I think it's important to point out that it's, it was a different time then and, and that we've evolved and what was acceptable back then is not acceptable now. So to the guy, I'm assuming it's a guy, who wrote a scathing review on iTunes, you're not listening anyway, but, you know, tough luck. I'm going to keep pointing this stuff out when I see it. Because it was shockingly pervasive, shockingly commonplace, and I didn't really notice it as a middle-class white kid growing up. And looking back, I feel disappointed in myself that I did not recognize it as being as pervasive back then. And if you're listening in the far future, it's t- 2017 now, that we're talking about 1982, 35 years ago. And only now, really, with the 
hashtag Me Too movement and the fall of Harvey Weinstein being sort of the catalyst to start this finally discussion on sexual harassment in the workplace. And and if you'll permit this digression for a few more seconds, I was in the tech industry in the 90s and then 2000s, and I never saw anything, but I'm sure harassers or women don't do it when other men are present. And I can only imagine as one of the few women, you know, probably less than 10%, probably fewer than that, of the workforces that I worked with were women, that it must have felt intimidating. And the fear of not being believed when you reported up the chain must have allowed a lot more stuff to go on than I ever knew about, because I knew nothing, and there must have been stuff going on. So while we can't do anything about the past, we can do anything, do stuff about the future and have people just not harass other people, get more women in tech, and hope that we don't get nuked and we can actually make progress in all this. Anyway, rant over. Although if you feel like going over to iTunes and leave me some 85-star ratings to counteract that one misogynist who left me a one-star rating, then I would appreciate that, though. So where were we? Okay, Antic. There's a basic program called Attack of the Death Star, which is kind of like a sort of tunnel-generating... Or not tunnel, but a, well, you know, Death Star thingy-generating program where you're, like, flying the X-Wing. My words are failing me. Cavern Crevice? Not Cavern. Trench? Ah, Trench, that's it. I swear my brain just checks out sometimes. It's like, I can't think, <laughs> can't think of the word. You know, I go into a room, and I'm like, why did I come in this room? You know, where's my pencil as it's stuck behind me? Or where are my glasses that are sticking on top of my head? The memory map is next on uh, Antic, so they're continuing with page zero, and they've got some locations called out. And it, at the bottom it says, if anyone has determined the function of it, of the other page zero locations, let us know. And they got some stuff on page two, and it says, page two, to be continued. The next article is called A First Look by Gary and Susan Frederick about Pascal, and Pascal is available through the APX at this point. They say it's a bargain at $50, but you have to have two disk drives. And I guess that's kind of why it ended up over at APX. Or one of the reasons, anyway, was they couldn't get it to be smaller. And they have a little example program that shows you how to set up a display list using Pascal. So it's not quite UCSD Pascal compatible, but that the manual lists the differences. There's some new products coming up. There's something called the Block, which is a cartridge copying device that will transfer most cartridge-based programs to disk. Read Pirating Tool. There's a fast chip ROM replacement, which is uh, claiming to speed up the floating point routines. And we know the sort of the floating point routines were famously slow. This is Atari's announcing six new programs. Uh, Bookkeeper, Home Filing Manager, My First Alphabet, Caverns of Mars, Pac-Man, and Centipede. Some of these will be on the shelves by June, including the long-awaited Pac-Man in cartridge form. Were there two versions of Pac-Man? I know the 5200 version. It was different, right? Yeah, so there must have been two versions, so they're clearly they're talking about the 800 version. As I recall, the 5200 version was better. Uh, there's a Slime by Synapse Software. There's Gamma Software's hockey game, which is two, three, or four-player hockey game. And in some hardware stuff, they've got a, there's a Percom double-density disk drive. The full-view 80 display card. I know, <laughs> and one other game, Apple Panic, which is, I always thought was kind of funny. It's like, why wouldn't they call it Atari Panic? But it was actually Apples that were running around, so I guess it wasn't Apple II Panic, but I would have been surprised if it didn't appear on the Apple first. It was by Broderbund. There's an article on the GTIA chip and how it differs from the CTIA. And it said, the um, starting in the beginning of 1982, the 400-800 were shipping with GTIA instead of CTIA. And so, basically, the CTIA didn't have graphics modes 9, 10, and 11, which were the 16-color graphics modes. In the fourth factory section, there's a article called Utilities by Bob Gonzalez, which is some impenetrable fourth listings doing yeah, some stuff. There's a book review of uh, one called Picture This, 
which is an introduction to Turtle Graphics, that the reviewer says should have been included with this pilot's package. And the reviewer goes on and says um, that it's really necessary for the beginning pilot user. It introduces all the essentials, and it provides a more systematic approach to learning how to use the powerful Turtle Graphics than as documented by Atari. There's <laughs> a little kid's corner program. It draws a little ASCII, well, a TASCII art. Ding! That uh, is a little picture of a smiley face something. Is that a sweet person? <laughs> I don't know. And it winks. So it says, type the program exactly as shown, including all spaces and special graphics characters. And on the inside back cover, it's got an ad from Synapse about slime, chicken, nautilus, and protector. And the very back cover is an ad for Crossfire, which is a game from online systems. And in it, the text of the ad says blah, 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 whatever. And then it says uh, Crossfire runs on 8048K Apple II or 2 Plus. And pretty sure this is an Atari magazine. So I checked the... Uh, on Atari Mania and found there's two versions of this game on the Atari. One is uh, Graphics 8, which is like a direct port of the Apple, and there's no another one with Graphics 7, and they both have the same sounds, but one sort of looks more like an Atari-ish game, and the one is just a you know straight artifacting and everything port from uh, the Apple. Next up is the Atari Connection Summer 1982 issue, volume 2, number 2, 3 bucks on the cover price. On the front cover, there's a picture sort of a dusk, and so everybody's in shadow looking at the sunset. There's three kids, looks like with baseball bats, and the middle one's kind of throwing a ball up in the air, and it's like frozen in time. It's hovering in air. It says they're going to talk about Atari computer camps, a camp experience that will last a lifetime. The sound of bugs. An Atari 800 computer creates new sound effects for the Neutron movie. And there's an Atari pilot special. How to change pen colors and pilot background. A new Atari pilot program. We'll probably go through the whole one of this, so I won't bother with the table of contents. Getting acquainted section, talk about the West Coast Computer Fair. It says it's one of the best attended in the home computer world, and since it's there in their own backyard, it's the, also the home of Atari Inc.'s annual Invitational Hospitality Suite for users groups. Apparently they open up for user group officers to meet with the Atari folks. This is last year's meeting, about 20 of them met, met with the Atari people. I also mentioned there's an, there's an upgrade to the ROM for the Atari A10 disk drive to make it go faster. It says there's no way to tell if your A10 is... Uh, fixed from the outside anyway. It says anything manufactured after November of 81 has, has the new ROM. So you've got to bring it into a service center. And <laughs> the next page, you're asking for pictures of your home computer. Talking about how you set it up, where you put it in your house, how it's connected to the TV, you know, living room, other room. Yeah, that'd be interesting to know what everybody's system looked like. You know, ours is just attached. We had you know, one television in the, in the living room, family room area. And it would just attach to that. So when I was on the computer, it was like, you would have to fight me to switch that RF switch box to TV. Yeah, so where were your computers? Were they set up in a room by itself, or was it on the main you know, family computer or family TV, or what? And next is the communications section, and it's a home telecomputing. And it talks about a CB simulator on CompuServe, which is kind of like a CB radio. I probably don't have to explain CB radios to anybody to listen to this, but they, they kind of describe a little language similar to what we would use in emails, you know, the colon parentheses for smiley face but, but they have phrases like uses paren paren hug paren paren for to show emotion or like equals howdy equals to add emphasis or star 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 kiss star 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 none of that really translated over to the modern era there's a question and answer section this is all about how do we use the collision registers and it lists all the memory locations of the missiles and players to the play field or to another player basically it sets a bit depending on which player or playfield number it collided with. Here's a special feature GTIA has arrived. 
more colors for your Atari computer. And it describes the new modes, 9, 10, 9, 10 and 11. They were cool modes to look at, for sure, but I never really used them myself, just because the, you know, the aspect ratio was four pixels wide and one pixel tall. It wasn't really terribly useful for like the stuff I was trying to write, you know, games and you know, fast-moving games, and just was too... Only having 80 pixels across was too limiting. On the next page, it lists all the languages sold by Atari of Pilot Basic, Microsoft Basic, the Assembler Editor, the Macro Assembler, and from APX, you can get Figforth and Pascal. And yeah, you can tell this is an in-house Atari magazine, because that's all the languages they list, and there's certainly plenty more. And then here we go, the sound of bugs. This is the article about Tron. So apparently, yeah, according to this article, the Atari was actually used to generate some of the sounds, or at least the bass sounds. There's one paragraph that says uh, it combines some recordings of stuff on the outside. It says, like, army tanks rumbling, or missiles firing, or crickets. And it said, by combining these organic sounds with the sounds generated on the Atari, and mixing them electronically, they can create the hyper-real sounds you'll hear in Tron, it says. Here's a new product section. It shows the Pac-Man cartridge. Uh, My First Alphabet by Fernanda Herrera, which was mentioned in the last episode uh, after he won the Atari Star Award. There's a home filing manager, which obviously from Atari, and it's kind of designed to look like a file cabinet. And I guess the word is skeuomorphic, when something on screen is supposed to... It resembles the thing it's trying to mimic. So I guess, what was it, the iPhone was sort of famous for skeuomorphic stuff, like the little note-taking app or something had like the yellow lines like it was a note app. There's the uh, little note announcing the Atari Macro Assembler saying it's five and a half times faster than the Assembler Editor cartridge and it can have up to 1600 symbols and no limit on program size. Uh, it even has a certs assembly time condition checking. Yep, Centipedes announced here. And there's a little blurb about Atari Service Nationwide just recently established its first nationwide support network. Over 700 factory-trained, factory-authorized representatives are now available to handle any problem on any Atari home computer. That's got an 800 number to call. I should call it and see if it's still in service. Not tonight. It's 9.30, so I wouldn't want to wake anybody up if it was... Yeah, well, hopefully it wouldn't ring in somebody's home 800 number going to somebody. There's an article about the Atari computer camps, which, again, I've mentioned before, Kevin did a a really nice um, sort of overview of the summer camps, sort of a composite interview episode with a bunch of folks, and that's on the Antic podcast feed. And at this point, 82, there's, what, four sites. There's a UCSD, San Diego, uh, Asheville School in Asheville, North Carolina, Lakeland College in Sheboygan, and if you can pronounce that city, you've definitely lived in Wisconsin at some point. And the last is East Stroudsburg State College in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And I have not lived in Pennsylvania, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not. <laughs> there's an article. It says, Pac-Man on the Slopes, and it's about a skier with a big fuzzy Pac-Man costume that extends probably it's probably five feet tall. So just above the above the top of the boots, ski boots to over the top of this person's head, there's a big yellow fuzzy Pac-Man skiing down um, at Zermatt, Switzerland. It says both Pac-Man and Pinky the Ghost came zipping down the mountain. Atari paid a lot for the Pac-Man rights, and I guess they were going to use it. Here's an article about home computerized photography, which is not what we would think about it as as today, it's sort of like a helper for the development process. It does something with the um, like the negative development, like, what does it say? Measures the exposure time up to a tenth of a second accuracy. And the software that was used, uh, the author said, had to make the software on a red screen so it wouldn't damage the uh, the negatives. There's an article about a 
It says focus on kids, and there's a this guy named Scott Schinderman, and they give a little description of what he's been doing. He's in, said in eighth grade, he uh, got himself into a computer programming uh, class at high school, and then he learned basic Pascal Lisp, 6502, a little Fortran, went to a summer camp at the uh, New York Institute of Technology, and on his Atari 800 now, he says he does all his homework on it, and he's trying to get his teachers convinced that he can do a study at home with your computer, like project. But he says he knows the concept will take a while to catch on. Actually, it's a unique enough name that I tried to see if I could find him on, but uh, I search didn't result in anything. There's a little basic bug contest by Tom Hudson, and there's the uh, solution from last month's bug contest. There's a little article on the... It says the Atari Computer Sound Finder. So it says, type in this little program and you can use your joystick to set the pitch and distortion values. It says, and draw interesting pictures on the screen at the same time. Article on Pilot... Another article on Pilot about changing the pen colors. And near the end here, they have a, a book review from for a book that's not published by Atari. It's a, called Atari Games and Recreations by Reston Publishing. But I guess since it promotes the Atari, they'll promote it here. And then it says there's a magazine called CompuKids. First issue published in, published in March 82. And I don't know that one. In my cursory search through Google, I found a CompuKids magazine from the Netherlands, but that was 2001, and I couldn't find... A reference to the old version. I found a reference to its trademark, but I could not see... Yeah, couldn't see anything about the magazine itself, so, yeah. And on the inside back cover, there's a, a bunch of cool t-shirts and Atari paraphernalia. They show a Caverns of Mars t-shirt and a Centipede t-shirt. Atari baseball cap, backpack, shorts, polo shirt, key ring. All cool stuff. And finally, the back cover is... a picture of a bunch of kids in front of an Atari 400 with the music composer cartridge. Alright, let's zip through 564 pages of Byte magazine. Volume 7, number 6, 2 bucks 95 in the US, 3 bucks 15 in Canada, 1 pound 85 in the UK. A McGraw Hill publication. This has a, another great Robert Tinney piece of art. Uh, it's titled Interactive Video Discs, and there's a sort of an old-timey TRS-80 looking you know, single-unit computer. And sitting next to it is a Looks like a, almost like a disc 2, but it's in kind of tan color. And there's a person putting this, like, oh, it's got to be like a pizza tray size, you know, like 12. It's, I guess, like a laser disc, if you remember those. You know, so the size of a record, if you remember those. Like, stuffing it in the disc drive, and it's got, you know, the flap that you can close in the front, just like an Apple disc 2. All right, so here we go with the table of contents. And if you want to read any of these, I'll put a link to this magazine in the show notes. But all I'm going to talk about, really, is the Atari Tutorial Part 10 which is the last one of these. So in the feature section, it has the, the Video Disc Interfacing Primer. It says, learn how to develop interactive video disc program. Next, interactive video disc design and production, followed by build an interactive video disc controller, video discs in ed- education, integrating the computer and computation technologies, interactive training in cardiopulmonary resuscitation, presumably by looking at stuff on a video disc. The next article is video discs and optical data storage. And get this, you won't believe it. We may soon be measuring mass storage in gigabytes. Hold on to your hats. After that, on the way to standard basic, uh, which is a proposed ANSI standard and and, uh, why that's important, there's an input-output primer part 5 character codes. Next is a general-purpose I.O. board for the color computer, which is interesting because um, the guys on the Coco Crew podcast asked me if... uh, the cocoa was covered much in bite, and I said, no, I don't think so. I hadn't heard, seen one. And of course, here's, here's, here's something about the cocoa. 
In the users column, it's called Terminal Madness, the Word, Grammatic, and then some, by Jerry Pornell, which is the critic reviews some new computer terminals, word processing software, compilers, and M drive, whatever that is, and I'm not going to look it up because it's not Atari and I don't care. Next is the Atari Tutorial Part 10, which we will cover. After that is Upward Migration Part 1, Translators. It says using translation programs to move CPM 80 programs to CPM and MS-DOS, which we will not cover. There's Oracle and Taft, the terminal Apple with fire file transfer program, which it says is a low-cost telecommunication program for the Apple II. Page 452, Maintenance Alternatives for Personal Computers. It says repair service options to consider before you buy a computer and preventative maintenance steps to perform once you've made the purchase. There's an article on the Omni Aviation Navigation System, which is simulate aircraft instrumentation navigation using simple trigonometry. In the review section of the table of contents, there's a bunch of reviews. The, the one section I will cover here is Bytes Arcade, and it lists a few games, Armored Patrol, uh, The Eliminator, and Galactic Chase. And there's a, reviews of Apple Lisp, Osborne 1, a few other things that I'm, I don't know. And then there's a whole bunch of like articles in the section called Nucleus, which is kind of the sort of meta articles, where it's got the letters to the editor and the technical forum and... System notes, errata, stuff like that. Okay, and I lied a little bit. I am going to cover a few things that I noted down here. Just as I flipped through, I found a few in- interesting things. At the West Coast Computer Fair, there was this uh, computer called the Corvus Concept by Corvus System, and it uses a 68,000 processor with uh, 256K of RAM and this sort of vertically oriented monitor. It looks really nice. Would not really be out of place, you know, 10 or 15 years later either. It's a Minimalist design, uh, not a minimalist price, however, $5,000. And interestingly, you can rotate the monitor like from portrait to landscape mode. And if I remember, there's a monitor I used to remember that in the, this must have been late 80s, early 90s, called the Radius. I think you could do that too. Also, they talk about the full view 80, the 80 column card for the Atari. And finally here, it's a little section that says, the 68000 pulls ahead. It says the 68000 seems to be the leading 16-bit processor at the moment. And it would have been till the, in comparison, garbagey 8086 processor would take over. It was always rumored, or at least the rumor I heard anyway, was that Motorola was unwilling to, like, second source the 68000, which is why IBM did not go with them. And I guess one of the conditions of the IBM, if I recall correctly, was that in effect, AMD was born because IBM wanted to have a second supplier. I'm sure somebody will correct me on that if that's wrong, but that's what I sort of remember. I mostly skip over the Laserdisc section, except to note that there was a an interface for the Atari. In the picture, it showed an Atari 400, but it obviously it could be any Atari. And does require a careful pronunciation, the Discmaster 5000. In the Bytes Arcade section, they talk about this Galactic Chase, which is for the Atari. It's a Galaxian clone. And it's quite a long review. It's it spans five pages, and of course, you know, Byte, though, it's probably of the real estate in those five pages, probably 30% is the review. But the re- reviewers seem to like it, and, and notes that there's a pause feature, like Control-1, which is a, no- a normal Atari thing, but it also is allowed in the game, which is unusual, let's say. I will touch on this article about the standard basic. So apparently there's an ANSI standard to have, like, a structured basic. So it's got a you know, case statement, uh, subroutines, more sort of structured programming stuff. Uh, and Wikipedia says that 
the ANSI standard was approved in uh, 1987. It said the minimal standards were 1978, and uh, I thought it was fun. The Wikipedia article uses a screenshot of Atari Basic as its sort of display version of Basic. So yay! Then there's that article about the general purpose I/O board for the color computer. So if you're interested in the Coco, check out the Coco Crew podcast. Their website is green, green, green. Eye-bleedingly green. But fortunately, the podcast itself is not eye-bleedingly green because it's, you know, audio. And finally, here's the Atari Tutorial Part 10, subtitled Human Engineering. The interaction between the computer and its human user is easily the most important and most often neglected aspect of commercial software. By Chris Crawford. It's basically a UI primer. Because at this point, you know, there's no standard UI. There's no standard interface, although each computer has its own way of displaying stuff. You know, it's not, it's not a point-and-click interface or, you know, it's really touchscreen. So for output, it goes over the two ways to get it. There's a visual and audio. And for visual, it says the eye can process three major forms or types, shapes, color, and animation. For sound, he talks about its use, or one of its major uses anyway, is to attract the attention of the user because the user doesn't have to be looking at any particular portion of the screen for the sound to be effective. Then he talks about input devices, basically the keyboard, paddles, and the joystick. Calling the keyboard the most complicated just because, he says, it has many weaknesses in that I mean, a major one is the f- that few people know how to use it well, he says. He says programmers use keyboards heavily in their daily work and consequently they're fast typists. The average consumer, however, is not too comfortable with the keyboard, which can lead to many wrong keys being pressed. I guess the advantage of 35 years in the future is that most everybody can hack their training like preschoolers and stuff now on keyboards. It talks about paddles being the only analog input device. Well, that's not strictly true. There are light pens and trackballs that become available later. Maybe this is, well, yeah, you know, this is Derry Tires written, what, end of 81, so it was probably in development far earlier than that. So, yeah, light pens, trackballs, that kind of stuff was not probably as common. And finally, joysticks being the simplest devices, he says, and they are very sturdy and can be used in harsh environments. Although, raise your hand if you've ever broken a CX-40. And my hand would be in the air that you probably can't see right now. Then how do we se- assemble the output and input into an effective program? He talks about completeness, directness, and closure. Completeness being that somehow the program needs to communicate to and from the user all the stuff that is needed to control the stuff. But he's an example of Star Raiders. So you need to be able to control the ship, but you do not need to be able to express to the computer your anxiety level or the flight path intentions of the Xylon enemy ships, he says. Directness. He's saying directness. The programmers must create inputs that are as simple as possible and obvious and unambiguous. And he used the example of, well, what does the Control-X key- keystroke do? Now it's kind of been standardized on cut, but at that, at that time it was not. And so what does that really mean? He says, does it mean destroyed? Does it mean negation? Does it mean something examined? He says, keyboards are notorious cr- for creating these sort of ambiguous problems. And then his final point is closure. He describes it with uh, an, al- an analogy that closure of a program is like, uh, if your program is a tightrope stretched between two points, a program with poor closure would just have a bunch of signs that say, that say be careful and don't fall. Whereas a well-designed program would have a lot of railings and support structure to, to prevent you from falling. He says closure is obtained by creating inputs and outputs that do not admit illegal values. He talks this is extremely difficult to do with the keyboard. 
and then goes to, in a rather prescient statement applicable today today he says as in the language newspeak in orwell's 1984 the user cannot even conceive bad thoughts because no words for them even exist and in, in another sort of unfortunately applicable statement to today he says closure provides an important feature for the beginning user security Imagine the naive user peering down at an army of deadly keys, each one laden with the potential for triggering World War III. A properly closed program offers fewer choices and fewer lurking disasters. You just thought Chris Crawford was a good designer. Turns out he can predict the future, unfortunately. And with that, there's a little statement down here at the end that says, The Atari tutorial ends this month, and we at Byte have been proud to present it to you. We want to thank Chris Crawford, Bob Fraser, Kathleen Pitta, and Lance Winner for making it possible. In the past year, the Atari 4800 has become one of the most popular microcomputers. We plan to continue coverage of the Atari in Byte, and we are very interested in seeing Atari-related articles from you. And in, interestingly, right next to this last page is an ad for TWA. So Atari no longer exists, and TWA no longer exists. Well, the Atari we know, as we know it anyway. One of the few last things I want to mention here is uh, there's an article on the Osborne 1, which is a, a Z80 CPM machine. This is the famous Luggable, and it's <laughs> most sort of interesting, maligned, unusual feature is that it has a 5-inch video display. And it was designed as a little window on a 128-character wide by 32-line display on the... Or that's the memory, anyway. The display itself can dis- has 52 characters wide and 24 lines tall. So uh, like a scrolling text play field for your word processor which is annoying on several levels. After that article, I will mention there's a book review on uh, Beneath the Apple DOS by Don Worth and Peter Lechner. And I only mention this because, well, one, because I used it in Omnivore to add support for reading DOS 3.3 discs. And two, that this this little article here in, in Byte has a really good description of the low-level magnetic recording on discs. So the Atari uses FM recording frequency modulated uh, for single density stuff. So it says um, each bit of data is stored as a clock bit followed by the presence or absence of a data bit. And it says FM recording is reliable and easy to decode. It's inefficient because two bits are written for each actual data bit. And then it goes on and um, I don't know if Waz invented this or, or if he got it from somewhere else. Um, my recollection is, is sort of he was the first one to, to use this, but um, I'm not sure if that's correct or not. Uh, the Apple II uses, or at least DOS 3.3 anyway, uses GCR recording. So it takes six data bits and it codes them into eight actual bits written on the disk. So six data bits in FM recording would take 12 bits on disk, where on the Apple it takes eight. So it's a 50% increase in storage on the Apple disks. And couple that with the Apple's direct control of the floppy itself. You can read an entire disk in seconds compared to, you know, a minute or more on the Atari. Also allows for some really interesting protection schemes on the Apple. You should check out 4AM's Twitter page for uh, lots more on that if you're interested in protection schemes at all. And finally, in bytes, because I'm a 68,000 fanboy, there's a little article here about the introduction of new 68,000 stuff. They talk about the 68010, which... I don't remember seeing any, any volume, but then the 68020 was a 32-bit, full 32-bit processor. And the 68881 was the floating-point coprocessor, which I never had a machine that had. 
And the 68,000 being a 16-bit processor had, you know, full multiply and divide, but it was all fixed precision. All right, well, if we're not covering Byte Magazine this episode, I sure covered a lot of Byte Magazine this episode. I will endeavor to be more streamlined next time. Let's take a look at Compute. This is issue 25, volume 4, number 6. Two bucks fifty on the cover price. I can't remember if I've noticed this before or not. There's a pound eighty-five note on this one. I don't know that I've noticed the marking being in pounds before. It's their normal style of cover. They've got kind of the watercolor sort of style pen and ink base. And then uh, there's some Atari stuff listed on the cover. It says a self-modifying Atari player missile graphics utility. And the other one is copy Atari graphics to your printer. In the table of contents, there's lots of Atari stuff listed. There's the aforementioned copy Atari graphics to your printer. Graphics 8 in four colors using artifacts. In review section, there's a QS fourth for Atari. There's, of course, the inside Atari column. And in the journal section, there's a few things about the Atari that about. One is adding a text window to Graphics Zero. Another talks about Atari disk drives and, and DOS. And finally, a subroutine to aid in debugging Atari Basic. In the editor's notes section, they talk about some new Commodore computers. They talk about the PET 2, which they say is a full-color, 40-column computer with 128K of RAM. Microprocessor is the new 6509. Suggested retail is thought to be less than $1,000. And another computer they talk about, the CBM2, an 80-column unit, 128K RAM, and the new 6509. I thought they were making a typo and talking about the 6510, which powers the C64, but apparently the 6509 is an enhancement that, kind of like the 65816, where it can address more memory. And so I guess 6509 could address a megabyte of memory, but it was still, you know, an 8-bit processor. It wasn't like a, the 816. I'll put a link in the show notes to a collector of the Commodore stuff, and has a big page about the CBM2. I'd never heard of it before, and apparently it was only released in small numbers or in Europe. I think it may have been had a bigger release. But definitely a different computer than the C64, which we'll be talking about here in the next couple months. In the article Computers and Society by David Thornburg, they talk about uh, some piracy issues that back in the February issue, there was a a quote-unquote interview with this software pirate named Long John Silicon. Chris Crawford wrote in and took the author to task about some logic. He said, I reject your implication that effort confers license. The thief who steals the jewels by vast cleverness and painful effort is still a thief. He replies, he says, I agree. Ethics is no place for sloppy logic. I am also concerned with Chris's analogy. There is a great deal of difference between stealing the Hope Diamond and cutting a new diamond, which looks somewhat similar. Nor did I condone the idea that it was acceptable for someone to steal a software product. I am against true piracy. The industry will collapse if talented authors aren't guaranteed protection for their effort. And then he goes on and tries to explain that he wasn't trying to talk about piracy per se. He was like talking more about the ability for people to create similar products. I suppose kind of like the Pac-Man versus Jawbreaker sort of case that we talked about in an earlier uh, episode of the, of the show. There's an ad in here for Percom. It's the alternative to Atari disk storage. And a Percom disk drive kind of looks like a disk, too. I mean, it's very small, much smaller than the, the 810. I don't know that I ever saw one of these. I must have an SIO connector, but it doesn't actually indicate that in the ad anywhere. It says it's a double-density version as well. The first drive cost $800, and then add-on drives only cost $400. Yeah, so it must be SIO, because they don't require anything else. There's no other interface box or anything, although it says that additional optional disk drives can be interconnected using cables available from Percom. So proprietary 
connections for the second or subsequent disk drives. Here's an ad for a rear guard, which I was on was on the back of the Antic. Here they have a screenshot of the Apple, the Atari, and the TRS-80 version. And you can see the Apple version with the artifacting colors. The Atari version is hard to tell. It looks like it might be graphics 8. And the TRS-80 version, TRS-80s, I guess, didn't have a very good graphics mode because it looks like there's about a, an 80 by 40 resolution super blocky and a single color. Just the juxtaposition of that versus the two high-res versions from Apple and Atari is quite striking. There's a basic game called Outpost that has an Atari-specific version. I guess it originally was a Commodore. Looks like it might be a turn-based game. I don't know. There's no screenshot. and I sometimes can't be bothered with these basic games with no screenshots. Eric will copy Atari graphics to your printer by Harry Straw. Goes through some techniques. So you have to match the number of columns in the graphics displayed to the number of columns in the printer. Here he focuses on graphics 5, because it's his printer says it's 80 columns, and graphics 4 and 5 are 80 columns. So these are super simple basic programs using a for loop, nested for loop. It uses the locate command in basic, which you give it an x, y, and it returns a value in z, and so then the z value is then L printed to the printer. So going into it, I thought it was going to be some sort of like, you know, digitizing, well, not digitizing, but, you know, rasterizing the, the stuff on the screen to the printer in whatever graphics mode, but no, it's just the, this graphics modes 4 and 5, which are which happen to match the resolution of the printer. So it's not a general purpose tool at all, which is what I was expecting when I saw the the um, title and the table of contents. There's an article by Fred Dignazio, The World Inside the Computer. Of course, Fred was interviewed by Kevin for the Antic podcast a while ago. Talks a little bit about a whole bunch of stuff like chip design and sort of high-level views of what programming is, a little bit of software entrepreneurship, and talks about the uh, July 9th release date of the long-awaited film Tron. And here's the article, Graphics 8 in 4 Colors Using Artifacts. It says, contrary to what the basic reference manual says, Graphics Mode 8 is a true 4-color mode, or 5 colors if you count the border, which is giving it slightly more credit than it deserves. I don't know, too many people use the border for anything interesting, because it's just the border. You can't really do anything with it. But it kind of goes through how the odd pixels have another color, and even pixels have a different color, and then in two neighboring pixels, both turn on, show up as white. And then, you know, essentially goes on to say that instead of 320 by 192 resolution, you have a 160 by 192 effective resolution, if you use colors anyway. Black and white, if you st- you know use the neighboring pixels to make everything white, you can actually stagger everything by a single pixel. It'll still be white. There's a teeny little article here I didn't notice in the table of contents, Atari Dice Simulation, W.C. McLaughlin. It uses Graphic Zero to print a little grid of the face of the die as it gets rolled. There's an article, Learning with Computers, by Mary Humphrey, talking about summer camps. It says what to look for a summer camp. You said you can look for what other camping activities they have besides computer stuff, what the age range is of the campers, the staff, are they more advertised as computing staff or camping staff, and then what sort of instruction they give. And then there's a big table of computer camps. The very first one listed is the Atari computer camp, which its price was $1,600 for four weeks and $2,800 for eight weeks. Campers age range from 10 to 18. It's a two hours of instruction and all day, the rest of the day for free time for designing your own cur- computer curriculum. And again, as I'd mentioned in previously, the locations are UCSD, San Diego, Asheville, North Carolina, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And then lists a whole bunch of other camps, not Atari specific. Uh, there are several Apple camps, a couple IBMs, and there's another one that, has, that says it has Atari equipment, the CompuCamp, 
Looks like two locations, one in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the other in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. That one is $309 a week, an age range of 8 to 17. There's a review of QS Fourth for the Atari by Charles Brannon. It says QS Fourth was the first Atari implementation of FigForth. Uh, I guess basically, if you're interested in Fourth, apparently this is a fairly good compiler slash interpreter, but it would require knowing Fourth, which is my obstacle. There's a book review here of a something called Beyond Games System Software for Your 6502 Personal Computer. It says it's a assembly language book. Covers four machines, the Apple, the Atari, the Ohio Scientific, and the PET. And it sort of does its work by leading through the process of building a monitor piece by piece. And it says, differences between the machines are accommodated by a system data block, which covers things such as the length of the screen line, input output routines, etc. And another review of a book called 6502 Assembly Language Routines. It says it contains over 40 subroutines to do some of the most common jobs in 6502 Assembly. Emphasis being, the reviewer says, is on utility functions. The book's broken into sections. Uh, code conversion, array manipulation, arithmetic, bit manipulation, string manipulation, array operations, input-output, and interrupts. The reviewer says it's a highly useful reference book. Intro is a good summary, though. 6502 working characteristics and the book is especially well adapted to someone who's moving to the 6502 from a different processor. Next is another article about fourth, and apparently going to be a recurring theme uh, in a section called the fourth page. There's a little header that says, Compute will be covering fourth regularly. Fourth is sometimes mentioned as an alternative to machine language, easier program, and runs faster than basic. And they keep forgetting to mention impenetrable. There's a little example fourth program, and in this case it's a how to blend an assembly language subroutine inside a fourth program, and I have, I have no idea what's going on in this. I mean, the indentation is all weird. They have, you know, lower, load JSR compare stuff on similar lines, and there's commas, and the pound sign, is that, the com- is that a comment? I have no idea what's going on. It's like trying to look at a piece of COBOL code. Have you ever looked at COBOL? Holy cow, that's indecipherable. There's a little one-page article, add a text window to graphic zero. A single poke statement will change a graphic zero screen into 20 lines of essentially a graphics mode that looks like graphic zero, and then four lines of text, which is where all the scrolling stuff takes place. So it's just like, you know, typing GR8 and at basic, and you get the, the upper, you know, what, four-fifths is graphics, and the bottom four lines are text. So it's just the same like that. It's bottom four lines are where you do your typing, and then the top four you have to address by using, for example, print number six, which I sort of vaguely remember. It says that's how you had to do graphics modes one and two, which I didn't really remember, but yeah, vaguely familiar, I guess. And here's the big Atari article, A Self-Modifying Player Missile Graphics Utility by Kenneth Grace. So it's designed for use with Atari Basic, and the main theme of it is using the Atari's string routines as the player missile graphics routines. The author mentions that there was an article in the April 81 issue of Creative Computing by George Blank that did this kind of same thing. And I think I recall something else more recently, but I don't recall exactly where. But at any rate, it's... Um, Tricking your Atari into treating the player missile memory as the string storage area for these for some variables. And it says Atari's fast string handling routines can be used for vertical motion of the players for animation. And it also says it doesn't work for missiles because missiles are two bits wide, so it includes a uh, machine language version, or machine language subroutine to handle the missiles. There's the article Machine Language First Steps, Part 2 by Jim Butterfield. It's written for the pet, but of course it's all 6502. And mostly trying to describe what the what BCC is used for. But it's only a single page. It's not really very much. It's not certainly not like a column from Roger Wagner um, as in assembly lines or something. 
Here's Atari Disk Drives and Disk Operating Systems by Richard Kushner. The intro being that tape drives suck, and it's time to get a, a disk drive. So it's basically an introduction to somebody who's never had a disk drive before. It talks about why they're useful besides being fast. Um, kind of intro to what a DOS is, and why you should use DOS 2 over DOS 1. And I've never, never actually used DOS 1, so... I don't know. Apparently it was not very good, and DOS 2 sort of immediately replaced it. There's a hardware article, Build Your Own Controllers, talking about how you interface with the 6522, the VIA, which the Atari doesn't have, so this must be a Commodore article, although it doesn't say anything about that. Then there's a little article, Subroutine Aid to Debugging Atari Basic. Essentially it's just a little routine that hangs out in memory, and then whenever an error number comes up, it kind of tells you what the error message is without having to look for it in the manual which is, I don't know, of limited usefulness because it takes a lot of memory, so I'm not sure. Once you get used to the error messages, you probably know what a bunch of them are. Like, what is it? Why do I remember error minus 141? What is that one? Oh, yeah, cursor out of range. Yeah. Boy, the stuff your brain remembers, huh? Can't remember where I left my keys, but I can remember error minus 141. The Inside Atari column by Bill Wilkinson talks about a bunch of stuff. The... West Coast Computer Fair talks about he was exhibiting there with optimized system software. Talked about some stuff he saw, like the Percom drives. It says 32K memory cards were in abundance. Uh, talks about Athlon's RAM disk. The long-awaited 80-column display capability for the Atari. And he said the Stargate Enterprises, which he said is an Atari dealer near Pittsburgh, brought and demonstrated a prototype of a small radio-controlled robot driven by the Atari. It's kind of a potpourri of stuff. Talks about there's a bug in the Atari assembler editor car- cartridge trying to step through the CPY routine. Talk about a simulate a print using statement on Atari Basic. And then switches to the inside Atari Basic section. This is part five. This one, he's talking about the variable value table. So there's 128 possible different variables, and they're tokenized by setting the high bit. Talks about how we each entry in the variable table is eight bytes long and what some of the flags mean. Goes on to say that Basic is not really smart enough to check these entries for validity, so you can mess with them, and shows how to do some manipulations of all this stuff by changing a few things, and basically says that Atari Basic has no real error checking, so you can change it, and stuff might happen, and it might be good, and it might be bad, so use it at your own risk. And that's about it for compute, except for the obligatory picture of William Shatner on the back, hawking the VIC-20. At least it's not super creepy William Shatner. And that open up the creative computing that I had saved here on my little tablet that I'm using to look at the magazines. And it's the very same exact ad for the VIC-20 with William Shatner. I don't know what my misfortune is that I seem to always look at that advertisement. Anyway, this is Creative Computing, volume 8, number 6, June 1982, $2.95 on the cover price. A little sash on the upper ha- right-hand side says hard disks and mass storage devices. But then the main sort of title in the main part of the um, cover is a focus on word processing and business applications. Two mentions of the Atari. One is a word processing for the Atari in-depth evaluation. And down the bottom has a indicates that there's a column about the Atari. And the table of contents, those are the only two Atari things that are mentioned. So it's kind of interesting to see which magazines cover the same stuff. And in, in this one, the first article you see is uh, about the Osborne 1, which was also covered in the Byte magazine of this month. And in the understatement of 1982, it says the 5-inch monitor is clearly the most controversial aspect of the machine. Indeed. And it talks about, you know, it being a CPM machine and how the 
little five inch screen as a window onto a larger sort of play field, quote unquote, of text. As I flip through, there's a two page ad for uh, Fernando Herrera's My First Alphabet with a nice big story sort of outlining, outlining what, why he created it and the, how he won the Atari Star Award. And then it goes on and summarizes some other stuff available through APX, you know, like uh, Caverns of Mars and instead it, the character set editor. editor. So it's always nice to see in a big Atari ad. In the article about mass storage, it's called a Hard Disks Night. It's this in-depth look at mass storage options. It talks about going from 8-inch floppies to regular floppies to hard disks. And this time it's saying the hard disks rotate at 3600 RPM, which is a full order of magnitude faster than floppies. Of course, that would increase again, you know, to, what is it, 7200 RPM? Was about the, I think it, well, there were some 10,000 RPM hard disk at some point. And now kind of spinning media goes away, it's typically fine, like, what, 5,400 RPM on the little 3.5-inch. Talks a little bit about the technology behind the hard disks and how the, the little rewrite head sort of floats above the disk surface as the disk spins around and creates this little, what they call a kind of a ground effect in airplane pilot lingo. It's kind of like the, the air pressure seems to increase as you get close to the, like, really close to the ground. And in the case of the hard disk, it says it allows the rewrite head to float about 1.5 microns above the surface of the disk. And it says that it's difficult to envision how small a 1.5 micron gap really is. Almost anything is bigger than this. It says fingerprint, human hair, dust particle, or in a sign of the times, a particle of smoke is much larger and would in- instantly clog the gap and gouge the surface. So in trying to figure out how to get around this, IBM figured that it was a way around it was to um, seal it up. And it says IBM pioneered this method several years ago. Prototype was named the Model 3030 and was accordingly nicknamed the Winchester. Because if you're in America, you've probably heard of the 3030, which is the type of ammunition used in like old lever-action rifles. The article goes on to say the hard disks first appeared with 14-inch platters, which didn't store all that much considering the bulk and high technology used. It says 14-inch drives can now store well over 100 million bytes of information, which really makes me wonder how it's going to be in the future. Why don't we tell people that we had 2 gigabytes of RAM on our phone? And they'll say, is that all? Skipping ahead a little bit, there's the article on Atari word processors. It says, word processing may not be the application of choice for the Atari 800 computer, but there are many times when an Atari user would like to set words on paper in a tidy fashion. The author, Philip Good, says the Atari has a well, the 800 specifically, we, we know the 400 has an unfriendly keyboard, but it says the 800 keyboard is unfriendly. Specifically, he slights it from the the right shift key is not where a, a touch typist would expect it, because I guess because of the position of the inverse key. talks about the question mark is over the 2 rather than next to the return key. The clear screen key is where the underline should be, and it's too close to the 0 key, in parentheses. On the plus side, he says corrections are made with full-screen editor using the cursor almost if it were a correcting pencil. But on the downside, the cursor keys need the control key to use them. Another plus is the Atari has upper and lowercase characters, but on the downside, nobody has marketed a 40 or an 80-column display, although at the time of this writing, actually, there were a few, but unlike the Apple II, which had them much earlier. He's basically reviewing three word processors. There's the Atari word processor, which is the one before Atari Writer. And covered by Wade in his very first episode of Inverse Itasky, Letter Perfect, which was covered in the next episode of Inverse Itasky, and then Text Wizard, which he has not covered yet. But these are all very early word processors. And basically the author pretty much dislikes all of them. And his final paragraph is, A lost cause? 
I don't think the Atari is a lost cause. With very little programming effort, one can correct its keyboard deficiencies. So this is clearly reviewed by somebody who doesn't use the Atari regularly because it's not that big of a deal to get used to the keyboard. So a big harumph to that reviewer. Although not that I would say those word processors were actually any very good, but still, slamming the computer itself was it's an affront. A front to this podcaster. We're talking about how to solve it with the computer, talking about prime factorization, some basic programs to factor some numbers. Talking talking about the sieve of Eratosthenes, which is one of the famous competing problems. We used to use it as an interview question, sort of unfairly, I think. You know, it was the back in the days when it was kind of in vogue to surprise people with these, you know, oddball little programming problems. We had a fair number of people who weren't super interested in math, and so it was just trying to understand what a prime number was, was not a good test of their skill set. There's an article called Machine Intelligence, a Function of Human Ingenuity, which is a really interesting read about the logic behind chess programs. Quite a long, long article, but if you're interested in this sort of stuff, it's, it's very in-depth, intriguing, interesting. Further on in there, there's an ad for Deadline, the Infocom text adventure game, and if you've not started listening to Eaten by a Group podcast, you should do that. It's Carrington Vanston and Kevin Savitz talking about text adventures. Finally here of interest in the creative computing is uh, the Outpost Atari, but unfortunately, it's missing. Looks like three pages are missing from the scan, and those happen to be the creative computing, or the, the Outpost Atari section. It's got the program listings, but none of the text that goes with it. So, yeah, no Outpost Atari coverage. I have not been able to locate it on the web either, so I don't know what's going on there. That's It's really very rare for the Internet Archive to have missed some pages. I'm going to kind of breeze through the rest of the magazines. The computer and video games really had no Atari info. The cover was a looked like three football players and a football manager, which I suppose I would probably know. They're probably famous people if I were in the UK, but I don't know who they are. But it didn't really have any Atari stuff in it. The Micro, the 6502-6809 journal, had some interesting articles if you were either uh, an AIM, well, OSI, or a PET user. But this would have been one that I just would have skipped because there was nothing at all really applicable to the Atari. And that was micro number 49, issue number 49. Soft side, issue number 30, had a few Atari things in the Atari side section. There's a little program called the Sound Mixer, which is a little teeny little, what, 15-line basic program where you could use the joystick to modify all four voices at the same time. So you could, it says, have fun creating new harmonies or cacophonies. There's a database management program that's included on the disk version of the magazine, but there's no listings here. There's a basic type-in game called Sabotage, which is not the Sabotage that I'm familiar of with, um, you know, from the Apple II. But, I, and, you know, actually there's a screenshot here, which is cool. Can't really tell what's going on, but there's a bunch of, like, vertical lines with holes in them. And apparently you walk around your little dot and walks around and you've got to get somewhere and do some stuff. I don't know, it's not very clear what's going on. Like you're, yeah, a little dot moving around, you have a laser and fire stuff and you don't touch the walls. And finally, the last Atari thing is a review of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, which is on my list to review, and um, a listener suggested that as one of the games that has a you know a cool theme song. And I'm thinking about doing like a theme song episode at some point. And okay, I just noticed something. It says on the cover, it says issue number 30, but issue number 30, according to Internet Archive, is back in March of 81. Internet Archive has this as issue 45, and in the masthead it says it's volume 5, number 9, which is definitely later than the other issue number 30. So I don't know what happened there with the issue numbers. But yeah, this is the correct issue for uh, June of 82. All right, we're back in modern times again. It's 2019. 
And this is going to be the first of the new style game reviews. So I'm going to look at a game. Yeah, I kind of go over a little bit of the gameplay. Uh, not seriously in-depth. Maybe. I don't know. It'll depend on the game, I suppose. But the real point of this is then to use Omnivore to look at how some technique is done in this particular game. In this game, Corkson, I'm going to start looking at displaylist interrupts. Because as you boot up the game, you'll see it uses displaylist interrupts to change the background color for a lot of stuff. And so it makes it look like it's very colorful green background of many shades. In thinking of this new idea for the concept of the, you know, this phase two of the podcast, I was interested in displaylist interrupts. And I thought that, you know, since I, I wanted to increase my knowledge of displaylist interrupts, so I was looking for something that might be an easy DLI to figure out. And in booting up this game and just dis- stumbling across it, it uses the displaylist to change the background color. And I thought, great, you know, that'd be an easy thing to look at. You know, I'll, I'll find, I'll find out how the, you know, how you have to set up the timing, whatever. All it does is change the background color. And it's great. It'll be easy to figure out, you know, just, there won't be too much going on, you know, just change the background color and, and then return from the interrupt and then I'll get to the next one. And, and But as you'll see, and as I discovered, there's a lot more going on in this display list interrupt than just changing the background color. But I didn't learn that until I got into this game. But so I don't get too far ahead of myself. This game corks on. Works on either the 400, 800, you know, OSB, or in the XLs. The cassette version required 16K and the disc version required 28K of RAM. It was published by APX in 1982, and it was written by Scott Ludwig. Scott Ludwig actually has a, a website that still has some information about Corkson and another game he wrote called Caterpiggle. And he was interviewed by James Haig for the Halcyon Days book, and so I'll link to the interview there. On his website, he said he, when submitted it, in the, the quarter that he submitted it, this game won first place. And then the Caterpillar game, the other one he submitted, had the unfortunate timing of being released in the same quarter that Caverns of Mars was released, which then obviously took first place and relegated his Caterpillar to second place. Corkson is an original idea he came up with, and in his interview with James Haig in the um, Halcyon Days, said that most of his ideas for games started with, he says, some cool technical trick or some technical challenge I wanted to achieve. And this particular one, he said he uh, thought of these green color bands, and it would be easy to do on the Atari with the displayless interrupts. And so that was sort of his hook into trying to design a game around that. He said it took him about six months to write, and he was still in high school when he started it, and then when he graduated, he used all his time to finish it up. He said he sent it to APX, and it took 32K the way he originally designed it, but he the, he said that APX told him it would sell better if it was rewritten for 16K. So he said he had to do a lot of changes, and it changed from bitmap graphics to some other mixed modes. And he said also that APX thought that it needed a computer player. And he ended up thinking that was going to be the big challenge to write. But he says that it turned out that the toughest part was making the computer dumb enough so it didn't just, as he says in the interview, crush human opponents. And he says the way he got it down to under 16K was to have a bunch of complex displayless interrupts to change graphics modes, like as the scan line goes down. So had I read this before I chose the game, I may not have chosen this one. I might have chosen a different one. But we'll get into all that stuff in a little bit. It's the usual APX-style manual, and I haven't seen one of these in so long, I'm not sure. I sort of remember them being stapled, but this one has, like, a three-hole punch, like, for a binder or something. It says Quarkson in big capital letters on the top in the entertainment category, and it says, the subtitle is Break Through the Boundary and Destroy the Droids. And on this front page, it's got a picture, a screenshot, in color. And you can see the screen is, is very scanline-oriented, which makes for games that the Atari really can do well. The screen's sort of split into two halves, there's a top half and the bottom half and the central center dividing line, sort of the the middle scan line of the screen, it separates the two sides, you know, the player one versus player two. The sides are a mirror of each other, so there's like 
these droids they call them on the tops on the top and the bottom of the screen. Then there's what six bands of color on each side. They're kind of like your shields that are protecting these droid things from the enemy's shots. And then probably a good half the screen in the middle is the playfield in which your little spaceship can move around and shoot at the other side. It's a bit you know I don't know Space Invaders y where you're you know shooting through shields to get to the opponent's stuff. But you know it's a two player version and. Um, only your spaceship and the opponent's spaceships are actually like moving around. Little droids don't move, they stay stationary. I'll read a little bit from the overview here. It says, your objective is, is to fire your laser through randomly occurring openings in the center boundary line to break through the multi-layered blockade protecting the enemy's droids who want to take over the galaxy. At the same time, the enemy is trying to wipe out your droids. If the enemy's laser hits your ship, you face the immediate and often total danger of a crushing wall. And it says there's other dangers. It says, for example, if you shoot through the boundary line twice from the same spot, you create a temporary free shooting zone for the enemy, so you must keep moving at all times. And if your shot misses an opening in the boundary line, the laser fire rebounds onto your own blockade. The battle ends when one player destroys all the opponent's droids. It's a game for zero, one, or two players, and each player requires a joystick controller. I do like the fact that he actually made the computer opponent be able to play itself, kind of war games-like. That's the end of the introduction page, and it, there's a contact in the author section. It says you can write him at an address on Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. Ah, yes, simpler times when author's contact information was included freely in documentation. The manual, of course, has step-by-step instructions about how to start the game, either for cassette or disc. And when it does load, you'll be presented with the title screen that has all the sort of menu information that you can use to change the different settings. And it plays the theme song, which sounds like this. You can use a joystick to select the difficulty level, the number of droids, which is the sort of number of enemy things you've got to kill before you win the game. You can change the number of blockade layers, which is sort of the number of bands in the sort of the, the green shields above the enemy and your droids. The option key selects the number of players, and I thought it wasn't working initially, but you have to hold the option key for several moments longer than you think you might, and then find that it will change between the uh, 0, 1, and 2 options. And the start button or the fire button will begin the game. The manual also says you can restart the game at any time by pressing the start key. All selected options will remain intact. The manual then goes on to describe the playing field, and there's sort of like an ASCII art drawing of what it looks like. So it's split in the middle vertically, so like the top half of the scan lines versus the bottom half of the scan lines. And this middle boundary area is mostly a solid line, but these openings sort of appear, get wider, and then disappear as time goes on, and then other openings will shift around in different positions. So the openings don't stay in one place very long, but those openings are what you have to shoot through to eventually destroy each of the droids. Now, as you shoot, assuming it gets through the blockade, the shot hits part of the blockade, and it creates a little explosion that's perhaps, I don't know, 8 to 10 pixels around, and then takes a chunk out of the blockade. So it takes several shots to get through the blockade, and then once you get through all the layers, then the assuming you've lined up correctly, then you'll have a shot at the droid. Your ship can move in any of the eight directions of the joystick, and then the fire button shoots your little laser. And then the manual comes with the section, The Cosmic Laws of Quarkson. Law number one, do not shoot while keeping your spaceship stationary. So if you shoot twice in the same place without moving, there's a free passing zone line, it says, on your opponent's side of the boundary line. So only your opponent can shoot through that. Lasts anywhere from 3 to 12 seconds, it says. But the opponent can shoot that regardless of what the the central boundary wall is doing. It it could shoot through that and get to your blockade layers. And it's a suggestion to avoid that, just move your spaceship after each shot. So what I was doing when I was playing was I would find a place that I want to shoot through and then just move vertically on the screen so you can still continue to shoot through the same place. But that sort of counted as not having a shot while stationary. Now, you can't normally crash into the central boundary line 
But as a consequence of this law number two, it says, do not let your spaceship get hit by your opponent's laser. If you do, an additional boundary line sort of appears. It's called a crushing wall here. And it starts from the center and moves upward if you're player one. And if you get hit by that line, your ship is destroyed. There are spaces in there that you can sometimes escape through, but if the spaces aren't big enough, there is a vulnerable section of this wall that's a lighter color. It, it moves from left to right across the screen. So if you can shoot at that section of the of the crushing wall, you'll create holes in it, and then you can escape that way. But you've got to do this all before the crushing wall pins you between itself and the um, blockade layers. And it moves pretty quick, so you don't have a lot of time. The converse of this law is also true. If you hit your opponent's spaceship, it'll do the same thing. This crushing wall will appear on its side of the boundary and then try to smash it. The, the computer does not seem super good about being able to find the vulnerable section and, and making a space for it to get through. Oh, I didn't play a lot on expert mode, so maybe it uh, is better at it when you're playing a better computer opponent. And finally, law number three says shoot only openings in the boundary line. So if you try to shoot through the center boundary line and you miss and actually hit the boundary line, the shot rebounds and will destroy your own section of the blockade. That's the end of the quirks on laws. The manual says you can pause the game by pressing the space bar and that the game ends when you destroy all the opponent's droids. The game defaults to eight droids, but you can have fewer if you want. It says the winning spaceship flashes different colors while the defeat song plays. And six seconds later, the game automatically displays the option screen. It has some strategy game tips in the manual. It says to fire repeatedly, hold the joystick button down, but be sure to move between shots. Yeah, like I said, I was kind of moving vertically, which is exactly what tip number two says, is to move up and down as you fire. Tip number three, this is the scanning vulnerable spot in the crushing wall on your opponent's side can be reset if you shoot that spot. So if you're somehow able to shoot the opponent's crushing wall vulnerable spot, it'll reset to the other side. And if your opponent is like lined up just to shoot the vulnerable spot, it'll be in a different place. So good tip. And strategy number four says playing against the computer, it recommends that you be aggressive and take the offense. Oh, wait, here you go. I didn't even know this. It says that if the computer gets hit by your laser fire, it will always get destroyed by the crushing wall. So there you go. I guess it doesn't... I Maybe that was one of the ways that he made it sort of reasonable to play and that the computer didn't crush you all the time. See, it makes sense to read the whole manual. I didn't even know that. Pro tip, kids. Read the manual before you play. In some ways, you know, here in this modern era, it kind of feels like you're pirating software all over again because you just download all this stuff and try it. And it's kind of like an afterthought to go back and read the manual and, and figure it out. You know, there's just so much stuff available, just like back when we were pirating. If something didn't get your interest, like, right away, you just move on to the next thing. That's the end of the manual. There is a review form, a two-page thing. Apparently, you can send in to Atari. Address Atari Program Exchange, P.O. Box 7305, Santa Clara, California, 95055. And there's a final page. It is, I guess, the back page. This would be, yeah. So, um, again, I forget how these were laid out back then. I sort of remember them as, as sort of a, like paper, almost a folder-like thing. And I don't remember being able to see the, both the front and the back full-page covers, but ah, I don't know. I'll have to look for more pictures of, of the actual packaging. But anyway, this back page, assuming it would be bound in something where you could actually see this, uh, it's a small summary. It says, Quark's on by Scott Ludwig. It has a brief summary of the game and the requirements. And then it has an about the author section, which is interesting. A little bio it says, Corkson earned Scott Ludwig of Hawaii first place in the consumer category of the Autumn 1982 APX contest. A recent high school graduate, Scott has been programming since he was 13 and is completely self-taught. He worked at a series of odd jobs to earn enough money to buy his first computer. After some experimentation, Scott decided to move up to an Atari home computer. As his fascination with his Atari computer grew, he decided to try to market his work. 
Quarksun is its first program to be marketed, and its arcade-style action and beautiful color and graphics amply demonstrate Scott's programming skill. After taking a year out to work on more such games, Scott plans to enroll at Georgia Tech to study computer science and electrical engineering. I'll link to a gameplay video on YouTube, and I, I played it quite a bit. I found it pretty fun. I think it, I only played it one person, though, so I think it would be fun with uh, two people. I always like two people sim- simultaneous games. It was interesting that the central barrier that you have to shoot through changes fairly infrequently. So toward the end of the game, you were really dependent on where the droid was and how soon an opening above that particular droid would show up. So I found myself several times just trying to shoot the computer opponent because the, the place I needed to shoot through w- wouldn't open up fast enough. And so it was just taking forever. And so I was trying to figure out some way to at least be productive because there was a bit of a waiting around when you get down to the last few remaining droids. At the beginning, you're sort of just like scanning for any break in the wall and just shooting without really regard of where you're or where you have damaged the opponent's blockade the most. I mean, eventually you need to get through all eight locations of the blockade, so you're just shooting wherever you have a free spot. But as the game progresses, that's when it gets a little more difficult, and sometimes you are waiting around. All in all, I enjoyed the game. It was a pleasant find. I hadn't heard about it at all. I didn't run across it back then. I forget now how I was, was how I stumbled across it. I think somebody mentioned it in one of the Atari Age forums about two-player games, and I had a list of about, I don't know, about 20, and we're just pulling up all the images on uh, Atari Mania. And this one struck me with the sort of obvious use of displayless interrupts. And that is a good segue into our new sort of focus of the podcast, and that's using Omnivore to figure out what the heck is going on with this game. So again, Omnivore is my program to reverse engineer why well, I originally targeted Atari 8-bit stuff, but I've used it for Apple IIs as well. And what I've added in the last couple of years as I've been working on this is a full-blown emulator. So I have embedded the Atari 800 cross-platform emulator inside Omnivore, and you're able to run this on all three platforms, Windows, Mac, and Linux. As I write this, haha, as I write this, as I speak this, I don't have Windows or Mac binaries yet, so to install, you have to actually install a Python version, and then the nice thing about Linux, though, is it's super easy. You just type pip install Omnivore, and you get it. I'm using Python 3 now, and the nice thing about that is that the windowing library, wxpython, is now buildable through pip, so there's a whole bunch of other steps and nonsense you had to go through when I was using Python 2. But now it's much easier to pip install Omnivore, and all those three platforms work for that, although I will have binaries for Windows and Mac OS sometime, hopefully, uh, maybe before you hear this. I don't know, but if not soon, it's still a very, very beta thingy I'm having. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of things I have to fix in the move from version 1 to version 2. There's a lot of changes, and it's still not up to the level that version 1 was. So there's still features I need to fix and add in terms of reverse engineering and the uh, the emulator portion, though, of course, is is all new. It wasn't in version one at all, and that's working pretty well. I mean, it still it still crashes occasionally. The hard part about the Atari 800 emulator, and I don't know if you want this much detail, so skip forward a little bit if you don't. But it's a single threaded application, and what that means is when I try to run the emulator, everything else stops, which would freeze the UI. You know, you couldn't do anything while the emulator is running. Which so it is not that big of a deal. You just stick it in another thread, and then you're fine. Problem being the debugger. And so what I wanted to be able to do is stop in the middle of you know executing a program. The only thing the Atari 800 emulator is designed to do is stop at the end of a frame. So it generates one frame at a time. It does have a debugger built in, but it's a text-based debugger. And so when you run the normal Atari 800, whenever it hits a breakpoint in the middle of a frame, it doesn't return control to the user directly. It, it calls a subroutine that then opens the command line terminal to let you type in commands, and then you can step through stuff. And then once you return from that, it continues where it left off, 
till the end of the frame, and then the frame returns to the user program. So there's like there's this little there's a separate entry and exit point in the middle of the code that's running, which in terms of it being used as a library, like I was trying to do, is not possible because you you've called the library to generate a frame, but then within that frame, it's trying to ask the user for stuff, but I can't intercept that as somebody who's trying to wrap you know write a wrapper for this. So what I ended up having, I ended up having to do is to write a wrapper on top of Atari 800 that runs Atari 800 in its own thread, but I'm not calling that thread. I'm calling it the thread that I wrote, this wrapper. And so I'm, this wrapper then returns control back to my program. And you sort of send it commands to tell it to generate a frame. And if it hits a breakpoint, it returns control to the wrapper with a sort of a flag set. And then the wrapper tells Omnivore that, oh, I've hit a breakpoint. And then Omnivore can do whatever it needs to. And then goes back and tells the wrapper to continue. And then it'll go to the next breakpoint or the end of the frame. The point being is now I have a way to talk to Atari 800 without there being these two separate issues of control. That was a bit technical. I don't know that I'm going to get into the innards of Omnivore all that much more, but I just thought I'd mention that as one of the issues. And that's part of the, one of the crashing things that I have is that there are times when, cause as I'm trying to step through this, this thing, when you hit a breakpoint, if it seems that if I step to a breakpoint and you're, you know, you're viewing the data in, in the Omnivore viewer, and then you decide to skip back a few frames and then start from there, there's some times where I must not be releasing one of the, not sure exactly what's going on, but uh, there's some there's some thread interaction that I'm not handling quite correctly, I think. And trying to restart a frame while I'm debugging in the middle of a different frame, I think, is causing some problems occasionally. So you will, at least if you're using this current version, will find some issues occasionally. And when it crashes in the emulator, it crashes hard. It just closes the program. So I guess the upshot of all this is to say that it's not ready for production use, and so caveat emptor. However, after saying all of that, I am super pleased at the way this is going in terms of how I'm able to look at code now versus a regular debugger. What I'm doing essentially is I'm saving every frame that is generated by Atari 800 in the computer's memory. You know, we have gigabytes of memory available. And each frame, even if I save all the details of the frame, which is the, you know, the 64K of memory or, you know, 128 or whatever, if you have an expanded version, and I'm saving all the steps that the processor took, all the changes in the, you know, AX and Y, stack pointer, all the internal state I'm saving for every frame. So you can go back and look at every frame's uh, status, you know, at every at any point, any any instruction. And so I initially I sort of thought about this as being sort of a regular debugger, you know, you step through stuff. But now I'm kind of thinking this might be more like a post-mortem debugger. So you just run the thing for a while, you know, you discover whatever problems you are, then you just go back and rewind to whatever place you were, and then you can look at what's going on. And that's kind of the way I was using it to figure out, um, so this is a slightly tangent story, but I was developing a, a Jumpman level and trying to figure out some displayless interrupts, trying to m- mash those into a Jumpman level somehow. And I was using that, using this this debugger feature of like finding the frame that had the problem and going back to that frame and then just kind of not stepping through it by, you know, hitting you know, like next, next, next or whatever, but by just scrolling through and seeing what was happening and, the, you know, looking at the processor state and what the screen, what, scr- what scan line was being drawn. And then, yeah, so I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of changing my method of debugging now. So we'll see how far this goes. And, um, you know, if anybody else ever uses this, we'll see what they say. But I am pretty excited about where this is going in terms of my development, at least. So let's assume I have the packaging issues worked out and you are able to somehow get Omnivore running on your machine. So what I am doing now is, so if you start Omnivore and you load up the Quarkson program... And I'm typing here in the background, so you might hear some clicks occasionally. But the way it works now is it drops into reverse engineering mode. So it's just showing the sort of representations of the the data in the raw ATR file. And so for completeness, I guess I should say I'm using the ATR file from 
Atari Mania, which is just the place I tend to go. And then again, when you load Omnivore by default, it's going to go into the reverse engineering mode. So if you go to the machine menu, you'll have some options. It should default to everything correctly. It should recognize that it's an 800, Atari 800 image. So you don't need to change the emulator. Uh, there's a few options, but then if you just go down to boot disk image, it's going to bring up another full screen window, and that is going to have the emulator on it. And it defaults to like a small image of the, the video output, and then some other stuff. Like the uh, the big thing is the instruction history box. And what that is showing is it typically just shows the last couple scan lines, so down to scan line 261. So maybe let's start there. So I'll, first I have to say I'm using an NTSC machine since I'm based here in America. And what the frame rate on the NTSC is 60 frames per second and 525 scan lines per frame. But it's an interlaced signal, so that means there are 30 actual frames made up of 60 fields per second, where a field is a half a frame, where the half is produced by skipping every other scan line on each frame. But you might be thinking to yourself, 525 frames is an odd number, so that would mean there's like one frame with 262 scan lines and one with 263 or 262 and a half. And I don't know the exact technical details, but I think there's enough sort of slop in the system that you don't actually need that that 525th scan line. But anyway, what the Atari does is it generates 262 scan lines per frame, regardless if it's on the even field or the odd field. So that 200 or that 525th scan line is never actually generated by the Atari. So each frame generated generated by the Atari is a constant number of scan lines, uh, clock cycles, color clocks, all that stuff. And again, all this is going to be biased towards NTSC, since that's what I've used and that's what I'm familiar with. But each scan line is 114 CPU clocks long. So it takes... 114 CPU cycles for the electron beam to go from one side of the screen to the other across that horizontal scan line. And since there are 262 scan lines per frame, that means there are 29,868 clock cycles per frame. And I mentioned color clocks before. What's a color clock? Well, my understanding is a color clock is the smallest sort of unit at which you can like have a full definition of what the color is going to be in that pixel. And so there's two color clocks per machine cycle, which means there's 228 color clocks per scan line. That's that, that sort of sets the resolution of the, the Atari. Like if you think of graphics seven, there's 160 pixels wide and you can chain, you can put, you can make the, any one of those pixels, you know, using the color registers. You can set any one of those pixels to any color from any color register. But in graphics eight, where it's 320 pixels wide, you don't have that fine control. So you have to, you get artifacting colors because each pixel is half a color clock. So you can't set each pixel to an arbitrary color. And then the reason there's, like 160 pixels across in graphics 7 versus the full 228 is the 228, you get a border on each side. And you can go to a wide play field and sort of eliminate some of that border, but you can't eliminate all the border. The wide play field is 48 bytes wide instead of 40. So 40 bytes in graphics 7 times 4 bits or 4 pixels per byte gives you the 160. So 48 bytes times 4 pixels per byte gives you, let's see, 48, 96, 192, 192 pixels wide. Where the extremes would be off uh, a typical CRT, so you wouldn't be able, I don't know exactly how many pixels you wouldn't be able to see on the borders, but you definitely would have some, you know, some of those pixels of the, of those, in those 48 bytes where the pixels would be off the screen. So, okay, so that's one frame. 262 scan lines, 114 machine cycles. And what the debugger does here in Omnivore is it ties a scan line 
and a machine cycle to a particular instruction. And this is not new. You can see this in Altera as well. In the regular Atari 800 debugger, it's not so easy to see, so I'm kind of pulling out more stuff than the normal Atari 800 debugger will show you when you break into its command line debugger. And so now you've booted, say, Quark's on. You let it run. You can see some some of the screens uh, change, some of the screen elements change. If Omnivore had sound, you would hear something, but right now it doesn't support sound, so you're not hearing anything, so you're not hearing the title music. But what you can do as it's running is, in the debug menu, you'll see break at, and then some conditions, and so you, what you can do is a break at next DLI start. So hit that, and on mine, I'm up to frame, what, 646? And I just hit a DLI at scan line number 42. Now, if you click somewhere in the instruction history, it'll highlight a, a cell, and once you do that, you'll have keyboard control within that. If you do shift and page up or page down, you go to up and down by frame. So if you do shift page up, go to the top of the frame, you'll see it says start frame 646. And notice that the scan lines start from zero. So when I say we stopped at scan line 40, what was it, 42? It's really the 43rd scan line that appears on the screen, but it's it's numbered 42. And what do you see if you're back, if you're still back here at the start of frame 646, you'll see scan line zero, and then you see the the next number after the so on the the scan line appears on the left hand column, sort of the header column, and then so for each row it lists the scan line number, and then there's another number that starts low and then ends up high over 100, and then it goes back to a low number. So what that is is the clock cycle number, but you'll notice they don't start from zero typically. So at the beginning of each scan line, the Atari does some stuff, or I shouldn't say the Atari Antic does some stuff, where it does some fetches and DMA stuff. And so that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the effect of the DMA timing. That's so you know, you don't see some of those early cycles because it's being used to read the display list or read the character set or other things. And that's a whole other topic. That's going to be uh, some serious research for me to understand what's going on there. But I hope to have some of that eventually and bring it into the podcast when I find some examples of some, maybe some DLIs with some really intricate timing or what they call kernels, where they're actually cycle counting on the lines in order to do sort of like 2600 style using the beam, which is possible with the Atari. All right, so let's go back down here to the bottom. Let's use this like a traditional debugger for a second here. So we go to the debug menu. If we're So we're stuck at that first instruction of the display list interrupt. And then if you hit F9, you can step. So that'll run a single instruction and wait for you. So you can see where it says instruction. That first instruction of the DLI was a bit, so it's bit hex D4OF, which is a non-maskable interrupt state. So it's, it's essentially it's figuring out which interrupt it is. And if you do another couple steps, you'll see it does a branch and then an in, jump indirect to hex 200, which is the display list vector. So now we're in the display list of the game itself. And note that the display list driver, the interrupt handler, takes care of like saving the processor status, but does not take care of saving any registers. So that's why the bit command is used a few instructions ago, because that doesn't change anything except processor status. So they're not loading an address and checking it. But once they jump to your own routine, then you've got to change, you've got to save anything that you mess with. So these next couple commands where it's, it's push A and then transfer X to A and then push A again. So you're saving the A and the X register. And it does some stuff with some of its own memory addresses. It looks like 48F4, which is, I assume, somewhere inside Quarkson, because it's not in the OS. And it's doing something I don't know yet. It's, it's looks like it's, it's got some zero-page stuff that it's doing. 
And then it hits, it says a store to D4OA, which is the WSYNC. So what that does is that forces the delay. It shuts off the processor until a few cycles before the end of the line. So if you notice on the left-hand side, we're still at row 42. We're at instruction 66, or cycle count 66 when we hit that. The next thing, the next line, we're still at scan line 42, but then we're at 106. And so that's where WSYNC returns. And then the next command is store A at D6, sorry, D016, which is the hardware hardware location for the playfield color register zero. And so when you're in display lists, you have to save everything right to the directly to the hardware registers, not to the shadow registers in lower RAM. So those are only refreshed at every vertical blank. And so you know, the vertical blank essentially takes those values that you have in the shadow registers and then stuffs them in the actual hardware registers. But when you're in the DLI, if you change the shadow registers, it would be fine changing the shadow register, but the color register itself is not going to get changed till the VBI, the vertical blank. So you've got to actually hit the hardware registers itself. So that's kind of the rule of display lists or display list interrupts is you've got to talk to the hardware directly. You can't go through any shadow stuff. And so that that single store to that color register is essentially what causes that, uh, that you know, the green background. Well, it, as it turns out, it's not the background, right? It's the foreground. So that's what you're shooting through. So it's the color register zero playfield color register zero is being controlled by this display list. As far as the computer is concerned, it's just playfield color zero and doesn't care what color it actually shows up on the screen. So we're just, essentially all we're doing is we're just changing the, we're just, you know, making it pretty, prettying it up. There's a few more statements and it looks like they change. He changes playfield color register number one, which is DO17. And then it stores some things in some intermediate variables on page 48 somewhere, hex 48. And it exits the interrupt. So that is the interrupt at uh, scanline 42. So it is important at the end of a display list interrupt that you restore the registers that you use. So it does say pull A and transfer A to X and then pull A again. And then RTI, return from interrupt. So that does all the cleanup of the processor status register. It's also important to notice that he pushed and pulled. It is a stack. So he pushed A first and then pushed X. So then when you leave the routine, you've got to pull X first and then pull A. So if you get the order messed up, it's going to be a crash waiting to happen. All right, so we're still at a breakpoint. So instead of just stepping manually, just go to the debug menu and then break it next DLI start again. And it shows a few more instructions. And then at, at scan line 46, it shows the DLI. So this time, if you break it DLI end, it runs through a few more scan lines and it's the same exact DLI routine. So it, he's using variables like 48F4, Looks like it's one of the color variables. So he's incrementing that and using that to store in the background color, or sorry, in the color playfield zero. And he's using a different value, different register to store in color playfield one. But it appears that that register is not changing. So it feels like color register one is not changing. I don't know, but then why would he include it in the display list? Hmm. I'm not sure yet. But this 48F4 is the variable he's using to control the color of that. Um, blockade layer that you're sh- trying to shoot through because he's loading that incrementing that twice and then later on he stores that value in that same register so probably what's happening is in the vertical blank he's initializing that register to whatever the first color value is and then every time he hits the display list he's incrementing making it a little brighter and that's how it, it changes and then presumably here, let's see let's keep going so we'll break at the next one next DLI start is scan line 51 next one 56 Next one, 61. Next one, 66. Another one at 71. 79. And then we skip down to 128. So scan line 128, 
And if I break at the end of this display list, he's changing the color of only register two, or sorry, color that'd be playfield one starting from zero. So color playfield zero is the one that's being used for the blockade. Color playfield one is used for something else. We're about in the middle of the screen, so maybe this is the um, the barrier or the um, yeah the barrier you have to shoot through. Let's see what the next display list is. interrupt is. Thirty. Oh yeah. So here's where the complicated stuff. So this, these display lists are not just being used to change colors. He's doing all sorts of stuff in the middle of the screen here. If we keep going, we find a display list interrupt at one eighty scanline one eighty two. That now, okay. Now this looks like the reverse. So this looks like he's drawing the blockade on the other side, the bottom side of the screen, because he's loading that uh, the color value from a, a local variable for eight f two, and this time he's decrementing the color, so it's getting darker as he stores it. So yeah, so this one should occur probably every, what, six, six scan lines? And then we'll bring the color value from light near the center fading way to dark at the bottom of the screen. So let's go to the next DLI. Actually, a lot of times what I do is I'll, I'll break at the next DLI end if it's a short one, and that way I can see the start and the end in the same screen without having to like scroll manually through uh, through breakpoints. And yeah, so that's what he's doing. So the next one was at 191, and Next one after that will be at 196, and then 201, 206, so every five scan lines um, until the end. So I thought I was going to be looking at this game as sort of a simple example of display list interrupts, but it it turns out there are some sort of straightforward ones doing these color changes. But then there's a bunch of stuff going on in the middle, and after reading his interview and sort of understanding that he had to compress this game from from a 32K game down to a 16K game, saying he had to do a lot of tricks and stuff, so that must have been the more complicated stuff. I'm not going to try to figure that one out today, and I think this might be enough sort of technical detail for this first episode, but this is kind of the idea of what I want to do for the next, you know, for this phase of the podcast, is jump into a game and find out something about it, and then step through it using Omnivore, and hopefully as Omnivore develops, it'll be easier and easier to step through things and find more interesting things. So that's where I think I'm going to leave it for this episode. I enjoyed Corkson. I thought it was a good game. It was it's definitely worth a play, especially, I think, if uh, get two players going. In terms of the display list interrupt, it was much more complicated than I was thinking it was, at least in the sort of the middle section there where he's doing some tricks to get the game, you know, kind of optimized. I think I'm understanding display lists a little bit better, and I used some display lists in a Jumpman level that I was working on over these last couple weeks. And I, I think I am starting to get a little bit better of a handle on it, but I'm not, I'm to, I, I'm not totally, totally understanding it, everything. So I think what I'm going to do for next game is I'm going to look at Minor 2049er, which is a game that I'm sure must use a bunch of display list interrupts. Certainly for the title screen, where the, sort of the rainbow thing, rainbow colors slide down the whole title screen, if I'm remembering it correctly. But it's using like a graphics, I don't know what that would be. It was graphics one or graphics two, but those character, long characters, but the, colors are changing, you know, per scan line, so it's not just a character that's changing. So I'm going to see how that display list works and the interrupt display list interrupt that goes with it, as well as the Bounty Bob character himself is a multicolored sprite, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that works. And I'm sure he must be multiplexing players in there, Bill Hogue when he wrote it, because there's a, there's a lot more players than just, you know, four plus the combined missile player. So I think there's going to be a whole lot of display list interrupt stuff in Minor 2049er, and we'll take a look at that. So, well, it's good to be back. Hopefully I can be a regular podcast contributor again, and you can tell all your friends to add Player Missile back to their podcast feeds. I would like to again thank Steph Animal for the use of her song Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear as the new theme song for the podcast. I really enjoy her work, and I will include a link to all her stuff on Bandcamp in the show notes. 
So if you have any feedback for me, you can send me an email at feedback at playermissile.com. I'm on Twitter, at Atari 8-Bit Games, and I just experimented, starting to experiment anyway, with Instagram, and I'm at playermissile on Instagram. So until next time, may all your arguments get popped off the stack in the correct order.